You're listening to the podcast of the Leadership Center for Social Justice at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. We seek to open a space for critical theological conversations about pressing social issues we face in our world today. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. I'm Rai Sigelko, and I direct the Leadership Center for Social Justice at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Arun Kundnani about his provocative and timely new book, What is Anti-Racism and Why It Means Anti-Capitalism? Arun writes about racial capitalism and Islamophobia, surveillance and political violence, and Black radical movements. In addition to this new book, he is the author of The Muslims Are Coming, Islamophobia, Extremism and the Domestic War on Terror, and The End of Tolerance, Racism in 21st Century Britain, which was selected as a New Statesman Book of the Year. Born in London, Arun moved to New York in 2010. A former editor of the journal Race and Class, Housed at the Institute of Race Relations in the UK, he was, as he puts it, miseducated at Cambridge University and holds a PhD from London Metropolitan University. Arun has been an Open Society Fellow and a scholar in residence at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture at the New York Public Library. He is also active with the Imam Jamil Action Network. Welcome to the podcast, Arun. Right, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this stuff. Arun, this book is written in the wake of the global uprisings of the summer of 2020, which began here in Minneapolis in response to the murder of George Floyd. And it is clearly intended as a kind of intervention into contemporary discourse about racism and anti-racism. So I thought we could begin with you speaking to us a bit about what kind of intervention you hope this book will make and why you thought it especially necessary to write it today. Yeah, so you know, I wrote this book really after, you know, after the uh, Black Lives Matter uprisings of 2020 and um yeah and that was, you know, that was um an incredible moment for me. I mean, I think you know, the New York Times reported that we had 15 million people on the streets. Um, kind of, kind of one of the largest kind of moments like that in U.S. history. Um, from what I could see, being on the streets in New York City, the average age was maybe you know 18 years old, very young, organizing themselves with apps that I, I've never even heard of. And and um, what struck me, uh, I mean, it, there's a lot of things to say about that, but one of the things that struck me. And kind of enraged me um, uh, over that year, especially was um, the the kind of gap between what was happening on the streets and the kinds of demands that were being made on the streets by people involved in those protests, and then how those demands were then um, kind of refracted into what was happening in um, liberal institutions in the United States. So, you know, obviously there was the conservative reaction to it, which is predictable, and and um, and, and we've we, we've talked about that at lots of different places, but you know there was something about so the, the the protests themselves. I mean, if you were involved in the protests and if you if you kind of um, followed what what those young people on the streets were talking about, um, they were saying, um, you know, the, look at the slogans: defund the police, abolish ICE, and so on. Right? What they were talking about was an understanding that these institutions like. Um, like law enforcement, like uh, prisons, like uh, border regimes, are not um, keeping us safe. They're, they're sources of racial violence, right? That harm people, and and the the solution to that is not going to lie in, um, you know, more diversity in who runs those institutions or who works in them, um, better training, um, uh, and so on. It's going to require us that we actually dismantle these institutions in a much more fundamental way, right? So that was, you know, lots of people saying lots of different things on these protests, but that was to me what seemed like the centre of gravity for it. And then what happened in, um, you know, in in universities and 
kind of in liberal America generally, actually. Um, you know, people talked about this kind of racial reckoning that was going on. Everyone was reading Robin D'Angelo and listening to the podcast and, and uh, doing the work, as the phrase was. It was a kind of process whereby white people were being invited to kind of turn in on themselves, examine their unconscious biases. Institutions, liberal institutions were being, um, you know, were, were kind of going through a process of thinking about who's represented in the leadership is it is it is the diversity of leadership representative of the demographics of the united states and so on right um and so actually that's a very different set of ideas of what anti-racism might mean from what from the version of anti-racism that was that was coming out of the street so that that kind of gap between the two was very striking right and um so so what i wanted to do in the book was um to kind of distinguish quite clearly in a way that i don't think anyone else has really done before between um, what we can call a kind of radical anti-racist tradition that I think is what was being expressed on the streets and a liberal anti-racist tradition that is what was being expressed in those more, more kind of institutional spaces in the United States, the universities, um, the White House, you know, the, the CEOs of, of major corporations, in fact, as well. You know, Larry Fink, the CEO of, of uh, BlackRock, you know, the most powerful financial organization in the world was talking about how we need to tackle systemic racism and, and you know, um, talking about diversity and, and so on, right? Um, so I think that um, there was a need to kind of look at where all that comes from. And that was, that was what I set out to do. Um, and the, and the, because what I, what I want us to be changing is, is where we focus our energy, right? Like if we're focusing all our energy on, on tackling what we call unconscious biases, thinking about representation diversity, we're not actually, I think, being uh, putting ourselves in a position where we can build the kinds of collective power that we actually need, the kind of organizational power that we actually need to dismantle structural racism. Because we're serious that this is structural racism. There's structures to it. It's not going to be a process that we're going to be able to do unless we have a a collective power. And you don't build collective power by turning inwards into yourself and, re- and kind of focusing on individual attitudes and beliefs. You have to think about how do you build something that is greater than the sum of individuals that has that kind of force that can take on these structures and dismantle them and then build something new. Um, so, you know, so that was that was um, uh, the, the the aim of the book and, and why the, the kind of historical story I tell in the book is, is, I feel, necessary for us to understand at this particular moment and what I hope it changes in terms of our, our um, behaviours and our decisions about what, you know, what we do with, with our activism. You open the book by pointing us to a World War II memorial site near Vught, a small town in the Netherlands, which today commemorates the lives of the many thousands of people held in confinement there in 1943 in what was once a Nazi-run concentration camp. The camp had initially been built as a transit center to hold Dutch Jews who were rounded up and eventually sent on to death camps in Germany and Poland. You tell us that during this time, the Nazis also made a contract with the Dutch corporation Philips, and the site functioned as a place of forced labor for the manufacturing of flashlights and radios. Among the many people imprisoned and forced to work there included Roma, LGBTQ people, Jehovah's Witnesses, homeless people, and people accused of ordinary crimes, as well as communists and others active in the resistance against Nazism. The site has a particular personal significance for you as you share about how your grandfather, Henricus van Herten, a Dutch Catholic bookkeeper, was imprisoned there, in addition to a man named Anton de Kamm, an anti-colonial leader and anti-Nazi resistor from Suriname, who was imprisoned for organizing on a number of fronts against Dutch colonial rule. You point out that today the memorial is spread out over several buildings and outdoor areas. The main building is a museum with exhibits on the history of the camp and Nazism in Europe. Outside the buildings, there are reconstructions of the concentration camp apparatus, including watchtowers and barbed wire fences. The museum serves both a commemorative and an educational purpose with spaces of reflection for people to make connections between the history of the concentration camp and racism today. The lessons at the memorial encourage its visitors to reflect on how their lives make a difference in the world and how they show up in the face of contemporary racism, including the ongoing stereotyping of people, 
assumptions that people make based on physical appearance and the education needed to overcome the various forms of bias and prejudice that people continue to hold. Now, you point out that the lessons of the memorial are pretty superficial and watered down and really probably don't seek to offend or bring discomfort to anybody in particular. And yet, what is much more disturbing and perhaps more illuminating is the fact that as one walks through the memorial, it's impossible not to notice that, you say, alongside one of the memorial walls is a much taller wall topped with barbed wire and closed circuit TV cameras. On the other side of the wall, you write, are prison buildings, their arrangement mirroring that of the memorial's reconstructed camp buildings. On the same site of the memorial, then, is a functioning prison with a high-security unit. If you look left from the memorial's main entrance, you go on to say, the tall metal doors of the prison entrance are visible, flanked by lines of people waiting to visit inmates. Many are women, wearing hijabs and niqabs. This site now imprisons so-called Islamic radicalizers, and it has become known informally as a Muslim detention center. Reports of abuse are rampant. Many of the inmates have not been convicted of a crime, and some have gone on hunger strike for being treated worse than animals. So this is how you decide to open the book. And it raises the question, how do we interpret the cruel irony in all of this? A site purportedly devoted to commemorating victims of racism and that expressly seeks to educate against racism stands apparently without contradiction next to a massive high security prison that confines, abuses, and effectively tortures hundreds of Muslims today. To me, this opening serves as a kind of parable for what you seek to, de to demystify, diagnose, and reveal about the strange contradictions, silences, confusions, and outright misunderstandings of how race and racism is understood in our contemporary moment. I wonder if you could share with us how you interpret the meaning of this memorial site and the contradictions that it reveals. And perhaps if you're willing, also how the history of this site actually intersects with your own family history. Yeah, thank you, Rai. So, so um, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I became aware of this this place fucked uh, because my grandfather was was imprisoned there during during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in um, in World War Two, uh, and so I, you know, I, I had this experience of of going to visit the camp uh, for the first time uh, twelve years or so ago, um, and then at that point. You know this this um, part of the original campsite had already been made into a kind of memorial um, to commemorate um, you know those who'd been imprisoned there and and the the um, genocide or violence that was directed particularly against Jews who were who were imprisoned there and then you know almost all of them sent on to um, death camps in in uh, Nazi occupied Poland. And in Germany, and and so, um, as as you're, you know, as you just described, as you're walking around the, the site of this camp, um, you're um, you become aware that there's another functioning prison um, on the same site, and that actually the buildings that the Nazis built are still being used as a functioning prison, um, and and um, you become aware that in fact. Um, this prison is part of the kind of global infrastructure of the war on terror. Uh, it's a prison where people are put into solitary confinement um, uh, and subjected to various kinds of, of kind of um, mental torture. That that um, is is something that you see across you know various sites of, of the global war on terror. Um, whether it's uh, Guantanamo, whether it's uh, Bagram um, in Afghanistan when that when that was a military. U.S. military base, uh, whether it's Abu Ghraib in Iraq, and so on, right? And so, um, you know, the, the the picture in book is slightly different. It's you know, it's it's not the same as those exactly, but the the kind of logic of it is is bound up with with that um, that story. Um, and and when you dig into what is the you know where does this idea come from that that um, you can deal with 
um, people in this way. It comes actually out of a, um, a history in the United States of uh, developing practices of solitary confinement to tackle black radical activism within prison systems. And this is this is what was kind of developed in the in the nineteen sixties, and they really blossomed in the nineteen seventies in response to prison uprisings uh, led predominantly by by black prisoners. And and so the response from the prison system was, well, to deal with prison disruption of this kind, as they would see it, um, we would use this technique of solitary confinement. And the idea is that you can, by putting someone in solitary confinement, you can kind of remold their personalities, right? So you can kind of erase the, the, the uh, person who's perceived to be a radical or an extremist or a um, a disruptive influence in the prison population. It raised that personality down to a blank slate and then rebuild a kind of compliant personality uh, on software. That was that's the kind of thinking that the psychologists working for the Federal Bureau of Prisons had when they were developing these techniques, which of course then, as we know, since then, have, you know, uh, huge numbers of people have been subjected to in the United States. Well, in the war on terror, these same techniques are used on the assumption that this can be a way of de-radicalizing Muslims who are perceived to be extremists, right? And that's what's going on in Vuk. That's why people are, are being treated in that way in Vuk and subjected to that solitary confinement. Right? Um, and and so what you what you begin to understand is that what is happening in Vuk today in this place that used to be um, a Nazi concentration camp is a different kind of racism, right? It's a different kind of racism because the way it works is is not as as Nazi anti-Semitism did at the idea of um, you know, simply uh, eliminating Jews from Europe, which was the Nazi plan and prisons, that the camps were a means to that end for, for the Nazis. But in the case of, of the, pr- the prisons in the war on terror, the aim is to kind of remold Western culture into something that's compliant with what, this, what are described as Western values, right? And, um, and so, you know, torture, and in the case of, um, you know, the, Wars, like in Iraq, which ge- which are genocidal wars. You know, if you if you go to war um, in a country like Iraq, as we did, and um, uh, you you have no, it's certainly not a war of self defense. Um, it's a war of aggression, and you d- and you end up, um, you know, through that violence, leading to a death of. I mean, we don't know the exact number. No one's really systematically counted it, but it's certainly um, something like at least a million civilians. Um, and, it, and if your rationale for, for carrying out that war is the idea, which, you know, this is what um, we heard from from Tony Blair, who was, you know, one of the kind of main propagandists for, for the, the 2003 war. If, you're, if your rationale, as he put it, it's not regime change, it's values change. The idea is that the, that ir- the Iraqi society, like other societies um, that are majority Muslim or Arab countries, um, that... that their cultural values are so antagonistic to the kind of liberal world that Tony Blair believed he wanted to create that, that only a kind of war like that and that kind of industrial scale of violence can can do the work of erasing the pre-existing culture and, and kind of creating that blank slate again that that then they hope to rebuild. And they're fairly explicit about this as, as the motivation to the Iraq war. It wasn't, of course, we know that they were lying about weapons structure and so on and people sort of speculated about what the real reasons for that war was but for me that's what it was and so um there's an over you know there's this, it's the same thinking that is that is leading to that genocidal war in iraq as is leading to the um solitary confinement of people defined as muslim extremists in this place booked in holland on the site of a nazi concentration camp so why can't we see you know so the question this begs is why can't we see that right like the the booked memorial uh, that commemorates the um, the Nazi genocide of Jews um, in in Holland um, has a you know explicitly states on the wall do not be a bystander when you see harm being done to others and everyone walking through that memorial is literally a bystander because they're standing right by a prison where people are being tortured um, and that torture is bound up in a kind of racial justification because it's directed at Muslims in this way. It's some it's assumption that Muslim culture is is so dangerous to liberal values that it needs to be reshaped and reformed, right? So why can't we see that? And the, and I think the answer is is because we have, um, you know, this goes back to, to to where we began, which is we actually have two different versions of anti-racism, right? We have a liberal version of anti-racism and a radical version. Liberal version of anti-racism says. Um, racism is about individual attitudes and prejudices and beliefs, and t- and you need to 
um, find ways to tackle that. And um, and it's a and so it's a kind of educational project. It's a, it's about trying to get people to see that their their assumptions are misguided and to and to to correct those those uh, misplaced assumptions, right? And to and to kind of be more rational in how they perceive other people, right? Um, now, in the case of um, the war on terror, that it doesn't look like it's it's all about some kind of set of individual prejudices. It's clearly bound up with much bigger structural processes, right? And the racism that's 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 bound up with the war on terror is um, it, it, it's not easily understood within that liberal idea of anti-racism. Now, the other person that you mentioned who was at book with my grandfather, Anton Decom, a black revolutionary who um, fought against Dutch colonialism in Suriname, and then the, um, uh, to try and um, uh, uh, prevent his activism from from building up a mass movement in in Suriname against Dutch colonialism, the Dutch basically brought him to to Holland um, in the 1930s, where they thought he would there was cause less trouble. And then he ends up joining the uh, the resistance to the Nazi occupation with Nazis. Nazis occupy Netherlands in 1940, and then ends up himself being arrested and and being placed in in um, in the Vught camp. Um, and now, if you read his analysis of, of what anti-racism might be, he has a structural analysis, right? He sees racism as bound up with um, the way that uh, capitalism organizes different labor forces and the, the kind of boundaries that it creates between those labor forces um, in order to um, uh, legitimize and organize um, the, the kind of differential kinds of relationships to capitalism that different racial groups have right now we can get into that you know that, what that theory would look like but it it means that um you know it, it, it's the kind of it, he's, he's coming from this radical anti-racist tradition we need that radical anti-racist tradition if we're going to be able to see that the, the kinds of things that are happening as new forms of racism because they are only under understandable in this way where we look at the the overall structures of of racial capitalism and unfortunately you know we we um, when we w- when we look at the Vught Memorial in, in Holland today, we don't see very much about Anton Kahn. We certainly don't see his idea of what anti-racism might look like presented. What we get is this liberal version of anti-racism that doesn't give us the tools we need. Yeah, I wonder if you could give us a, a bit a bit of a history or the intellectual roots of of this liberal theory of anti-racism. And you know, I guess I've been wondering how how it relates to the way. That Nazism is often remembered and understood today. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Mahmoud uh, Mamdani's work on, on nationalism and, and German nationalism and trying to understand Nazism as connected with the formation of nation states. And um, I suppose I'm yeah I'm, I'm wondering about uh, you know perhaps the the intellectual roots of of liberal anti-racism. Um, they're in some ways connected to how the West or or, or how many um, European and, and and sort of U.S. Um, uh, intellectual reflection on, on 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 Nazism, how that is remembered today. What what, what are some of the limits and problems of of this liberal theory of anti-racism, and and how do we sort of get at at the root of it? Yeah, so so you know, for me, the kind of um, two or three key figures here. Are um, uh, someone called Magnus Hirschfeld, who's um, a German Jewish queer um, intellectual uh, working in the early 20th century. Uh, Ruth Benedict, the well-known kind of American anthropologist. Uh, Gunnar Myrdal, who, who wrote the famous report on race relations in the United States in the 1940s. So, um, you know, um, so Hirschfeld and um, Benedict, both of them are of interested in how Nazism could have happened, right? And so Hirschfeld in particular, as a victim of Nazism, is, is, is trying to figure out what happened, right? He's, he's running this Institute of Sexology in Berlin um, that's, that's, you know, pioneering this new work on understanding sexuality. Um, when the Nazis come to power in 1933, they're shutting that down, obviously. And, and you know, they're burning his, his library out on the streets in front of it. And he's exiled to France. And so he's trying to understand you know what is Nazism? How is it? How was it able to come to power? And um, to do that, he writes a book called In German Rassismus, which is the German word for racism. Um, and um, uh, what he argues in that book um, is that 
uh, well, yeah, which is a which will be a familiar argument to us today, right? It's a very it's a very kind of um, well known argument, which is um, in the you know in the previous hundred years leading up to um, Hitler coming to power, um, German intellectuals and so called scientists had kind of basically told the German people that that the you know human species is divided into different racial groups and there's a hierarchy in terms of their intellectual capacities and so on, and um, uh, and that became the the, the kind of set of prejudices that individuals held uh that's what was taught in schools and so on and uh, and and so then when you have in the 1930s um a extremist politician like hitler coming he's able to to manipulate those prejudices to push through a kind of hate-filled political agenda come to power through that manipulation through this kind of emotional appeal to people's prejudices and uh and, and having come to power then can can abolish liberal democracy, and we get we get um, a Nazi regime. And um, uh, now, racismus, the German word racismus, is you know hit that book that he's written um, in the in the 1930s is um, you know at that time it's not obvious that racism is the central core part of what Nazism is, right? That's I mean that's a new argument that he's making, um, which is now obviously one one that everyone understands. Um, but it's also the first time that the word racism is actually used. I mean, when the book is translated into English, um, uh, in, in the, later in the 1930s, it's the first time that you have that word racism used as a, you know, as a, I mean, the word's kind of floating around, but the first time it has a sort of systematic uh, um, argument attached to it. Um, and so really that's the, you know, in a way that's the first kind of statement of liberal anti-racism that's, that we get. From from Hirschfeld when his books translated into English uh, in the English speaking world and and so um, the so the assumption there is is that essentially what racism is is a set of attitudes prejudices it's something that's in the individual mind it to to um, to be anti racist is to challenge those ideas right and to challenge those prejudices it's kind of like an educational project and so what you get then from people like Ruth Benedict. And then from Gunnar Myrdal in the United States is a kind of idea that um, liberal anti-racism means, um, you know, kind of elites in society who have, uh, by virtue of being elites, have kind of more access to education and are kind of better informed scientifically, as it were, than, than regular folks, um, have to use their positions of power uh, to, uh, to to kind of dissuade less educated, typically understood to be uh, more likely to be economically impoverished people have to persuade those people that their racial prejudices that they've um, acquired from from the past are, are, are irrational in fact because there's no longer any scientific evidence for them if they've been discredited scientifically and so they need to get rid of those ideas because they're wrong and this is the job of liberal intellectuals liberal academics and so on right so there's a straight line from there from that that kind of argument that's developing from people like benedict to murder in 1940s straight line from there to you know the the uh, liberal anti-racism that we see today, which is, um, you know, uh, diversity training, unconscious bias um, uh, stuff. You know, the, the the difference from the night forward is the only difference there is that instead of thinking of these as consciously held beliefs, we now think of them as unconscious biases. Um, <laughs> but but essentially, it's the same idea that there's something inside individual white minds that is mm-hmm. that is the root of what racism is, um, and um, uh the you know the 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 sort of idea that you know if we just get our our representation right in hollywood movies and that can kind of educate um the the public um into um being less prejudiced right and so um that's that's you know that's really where it comes from from that moment in the 1940s and um uh you know i think for for you know for a period of time in the in you know running through the 1940s um, into the 1970s, a lot of that work that's done in the name of liberal anti-racism, actually, you know, trying to t- tell people that these prejudices are wrong, um, does work. You know, like it's a valuable thing to do for for that period, and it's, it's it does transform. Um, you know, I think a, a, um, a lot of kind of the way that interpersonal relationships work in the United States, for example. You know, like I think the the, the kind of ways that at the interpersonal level. Um, you know, white people interact with other people now in, in a different way from the way they used to, right? But the, but the, I mean, 
obviously with all the with all the problems that remain um, in terms of those in terms of those relationships. But what liberal anti-racism hasn't been able to do is to tackle the structures of oppression, right? Because those structures of oppression can continue irrespective of whether the majority of people in a society like the United States even hold racial prejudices consciously or not. And this, you know, this is the the kind of I think the the argument that Franz Fanon makes so powerfully um, um, in his work uh, in the late fifties and early sixties, where yeah, he's thinking about Franz Fanon is you know someone who's involved. He's a he's involved in the anti-colonial struggle against French colonialism in Algeria. He's come from the Caribbean island of Martinique. He's one of the great theorists of of um, racism um, and how it works in the twentieth century. And um, you know, and he makes this argument very powerfully that. Um, Racism is not an, um, a kind of mental disposition. It's not a kind of individual malady of the individual mind. It's a set of structures that are initially set up through military violence and have an economic purpose. You know, owners of slave plantations didn't build those plantations and have Africans pick cotton just because they really hated Africans. Uh, they mm-hmm. did it because you know that was hugely profitable to them, and. Um, the racism then becomes a way to justify uh, that that system of profit, right? It's after the fact um, of the of the infrastructure, the economic infrastructure itself. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, once we understand that, then um, the project of anti-racism doesn't become a matter of trying to get rid of those unconscious biases, changing individual mindsets, you know, moving those pebbles to start an avalanche, whatever the phrase is. The project is let's dismantle, let's close down the plantation. Not, let's not persuade the owners of the plantation to have less unconscious biases or racial attitudes. Let's just shut down the plantation because that's the root problem here, right? And when we talk about that today, that means things like the, um, you know, the the police forces, the borders, the prisons, um, the um, you know the the systems of economic exploitation that extract wealth from around the world and, and hoard it in um, in the hands of a small minority, right? And do that through racial divisions and so on, right? But that should be our target. Uh, and that's and that's the problem with liberal anti-racism. It doesn't en- enable us to see. Most of the book is devoted to excavating radical traditions of anti-racism and the intellectual contributions of radical anti-racist thinkers. To do this, you you take us through a number of historical situations in which people have struggled to overthrow colonial and imperial domination. To get at the roots of racism for you is not merely about critiquing capitalism, as the title might suggest, though it it is that, but about looking very carefully at the often complicated and intertwined histories of the last 500 years of colonial and imperial rule and the ways in which race and processes of racialization have been integral to the development of capitalism. Today, we hear lots of talk about the need to address systemic and structural racism, and there is increasing awareness of the legacies of colonialism and slavery and how these are linked to ongoing racism. The racism of the Trump administration opened up significant conversations, perhaps in part because his rhetoric was so blatantly offensive to liberal anti-racists who had supported Obama. Today, one thinks of the debates that have emerged in the U.S. around the New York Times 1619 project, which has brought questions of U.S. history to the forefront. On the right, we see increased resistance to a truthful telling of that history, with several laws introduced to ban books and threaten earlier narratives. On the left, the language of settler colonialism is becoming increasingly mainstream. So too, the language of racial capitalism is deployed by activists online and in the streets. On the one hand, the shifts in conversation and the contestation over these issues seems quite significant moving in the direction of a more radical or at least a more structural analysis of racism. And I think many people have come to recognize that the optimistic, liberal, colorblind anti-racism of the Obama years missed something important. And so many now are focused on the systemic and the structural character of racism. And yet at times it seems unclear what the systemic and structural dimensions of racism really are. I mean, increasingly, it seems that racist histories are being exposed. 
that can no longer be dismissed or swept under the rug. And we see the afterlife of these histories of abuse, most visibly perhaps in the viral circulation of videos of police killings of black people. And yet it remains less clear, I think, just what the structural problems are that produce and reproduce racism. In the absence of clarity and consensus on these issues, there has been a prioritizing of diversity of representation and anti-bias training as at least good places to begin. But part of what I find really helpful about your book is your ability to show that radical anti-racism is inseparable from a long history of concrete engagement and concrete struggle against structures that are not merely in the past, but continue today taking on new forms in the present. I wonder if you could help us demystify the meaning of the structural in what is often called structural racism today. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's really striking to me, right, that since 2020 especially, everyone, everyone's using this term structural racism or systemic racism, right? And I think it's, it's you know, I think what you, what you just said is right, is that people are sensing that, that um, there's something... Um, that is beyond this this kind of colorblind approach that we need to grapple with, right? And there's something beyond just uh, thinking of racism as oh, there's a particular individual here with with um, you know some some prejudices, right? It's it's something that seems to operate above and beyond that that people are trying to capture with this term structural racism, right? But but then we get, as you say, we get into a, into a kind of confusing uh, situation because. We don't really have an account of what that, what that structure is in structural racism, right? And so, um, and and how do you fight a structure, right? It's easy to see how mm. if someone else that I'm engaging with has some some um, views that that I that you know that I consider to be incorrect, I can try and engage with them by persuasion, or I can try and um, you know shame them, or do do all kinds of other things to try and tackle that individual. But how do I? What do I do with a structure? I can't really see it, right? Where is it, right? So so that's the problem now. Um, but but unfortunately, we do have to tackle structures because because actually that's where the problem lies today, um, uh, and um, uh, and we need to be able to, to to tell a story of of why those structures do reproduce themselves and constantly reinvent themselves over time, um, uh, even as even as we push back against you know earlier forms of those structures, right? So um, if you think about you know. What was the structure of, of racism in uh, Jim Crow, uh, you know, the Jim Crow system of the, of the US South um, before the civil rights movement challenged it, right? We can kind of have a picture of what that looks like, right? There's a, um, there's, there's a, a kind of uh, political class that runs the system, right? It has various structures through which it controls the power. It prevents people from challenging it. And it, and it involves an economic dimension of, of, of generating wealth for certain groups. Um, uh, and and it has a uh, a whole set of ideologies and, and kind of uh, cultural attitudes to support it, right? So we can we actually can see that picture fairly clearly, right? Uh, we just haven't been able to to kind of um, really tell a story of what structural racism looks like in what we what we can probably call the neoliberal era of capitalism since the nineteen seventies, because um, we tend to think of of it as a legacy right, of the past, right? So we tend to say. Um, you know, um, we have a, you know, more so than ever, we have this really clear picture of what the past history of racism in the United States looks like, right? Like we kind of learned so much over the last few years about, um, you know, of what plantation slavery looked like, of what Jim Crow segregation looked like, of um, what redlining looked like um, in, you know, in, um, in cities of the North as much as the South in the, in the 20th century, right? Um We've we've kind of understood the history of of um, kind of white mob violence against against black neighborhoods throughout the twentieth century and so on, right? So, you know, if we think of racism as simply a legacy of the past, we're not really grasping the core of, of how it reproduces itself today. And so, to do that, I you know, I would say firstly that um, the structure in structural racism is. Um, is something like racial capitalism. It's the way that there's a relationship between uh, the process of how capitalism works and the need for racism uh, in a country like the United States to uh, to exist 
in order for capitalism to work, right? And um, and this is what you know people who are thinking about the idea of racial capitalism have been trying to develop over the last few years is an, is an account of it. So, I, I, you know, in the book, I, I kind of go into the detail of of what um, a theory of racial capitalism might look like uh, to explain why structural racism looks the way it does and why it's so hard to fight it. You know, like the, the big paradox that we don't ever seem to be able to get beyond in in a country like the United States is like everyone is an anti-racist, right? Everyone in the country is an anti-racist. The official kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of recommended value system for the United States, for every kid who, who comes through the American education system is told to value diversity and to, and to understand that racism is wrong and... For once, everyone's being told that, right? So how can we live in such a structure, an obviously structurally racist society, right? That's that's the kind of mysterious thing about it that we that we haven't been able to figure out. I don't think the answer is going to be that. Oh, in spite of what we all have openly tell ourselves, deep down in our unconsciouses, somewhere is hidden some force that that makes us all continue to perpetuate racism, even though you know our, our claimed value system isn't that, right? So I think it's I think we have to look at um, the way that um, when you have a capitalist society um, uh, that tells itself a certain story about what um, what class relations look like in that society, right? The story it tells is that we, those of us who, who live in the United States are all free individuals um, and um, we um, are free to choose whatever job we want and we give up some of our time in return for a wage. And with that wage, we're able to consume what we need to live. And um, other people own stuff um, that, uh, that that is... So they don't work for a wage, they own stuff, and their ownership of that stuff generates their income and enables them to consume what they consume a hell of a lot more than the people who consume on the basis of a wage. That's the sort of official story of capitalism, right? Now, the problem is, is that most of the work that's done um, in the world is not done by people who are freely contracting to um, earn a wage and then um, uh, they receive a certain income and uh, and consume on the basis of that. Most of the work that's done is not waged work, even though that's the official story that capitalism tells. So the obvious, you know, so the most glaring contradiction is that you know, for for most of the history of capitalism, you had plantation slavery, and slaves, you know, African slaves were not. Um, you know, sometimes when I've when I've talked about this stuff with with students of mine, the way they write about it is that slaves didn't didn't get any income for their work, which makes it seem like they they just were getting zero as their wage level. But the point is they were property. They were property of someone else. They were owned by someone else. They were capital, right? As far as the system is concerned. So so the um uh so if capitalism is telling this official story that um you know that we are all freely contracting individuals, or well, how do you explain plantation slavery? Well, when people ask that question, the answer comes from the system. Well, yeah, the reason that those people who are slaves aren't um, freely contracting individuals is because they're African and, and their their blackness means that they aren't human and therefore there's a, se- a separate kind of labour regime for them. Right now, that's you know that's the old story from from you know uh, early nineteenth century and so on. Exact, we do exactly the same thing today, just in different forms. Right, so the the migrant worker who's who's not able to access the same rights to um, to freely engage in in the labour market as as other workers in the United States, because they're because they're what's called undocumented or whatever, um, vulnerable to deportation, and that that deportability means that they can't um, be considered free freely contracting workers. Um, also, uh, um, made to to be in that category by a system of border regimes that has a racial basis, right? Um, we you know we removed a million Mexicans from the United States last year in order to uphold that racial segregation at the border so that the worker in El Paso gets paid $10 an hour for doing the same work that the worker in Juarez on the other, just on the other side of that border, but basically in exactly the same city is getting paid $2 an hour for the same work, right? So in order to maintain 
that differentiation that capitalism requires. We have a racial story of who's allowed into the country and who's not. Who's, you know, it's it's a the border is a is a space where race is constantly remixed, right? And and workforces are, co- are continuously constituted on the basis of racial differences, right? In exactly the same way that the plantation did. Um, it, it, you know, in the same way that we have a global racial division of labor as a whole, so that super exploitation of workers in, for example, Indonesia can happen where they make our shoes, our sports shoes, you know, for a tiny um, uh, income, where they make in Bangladesh our clothes for a tiny income, and then the corporations that, um, that, that own that production are then able to make super profits by selling that stuff in the United States, right? And so um, that kind of imperialist economic relationship requires a racial justification because workers in Indonesia aren't saying, you know, like when those workers organize and demand higher wages, what happens is is that someone comes along and says, uh, no, you can't have higher wages. Uh, and if you try and leave your country and go to another part of the world to get higher wages, there's going to be this border to keep you out. And why is that justified? Well, the reason that always comes is, well, these people have different cultural values. They're not going to integrate into our society. Um, well, culture is something that always changes all the time. It's something that always moves. So if you think culture is fixed like that, so that someone from another part of the world is always predetermined to behave in a certain way, well, that's called racism, right? That's that To, to sort of see someone's culture in that way and that is, is, to see, is to set up a, a racial differentiation. And capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, is constantly doing this in all these different spheres, right? But that's you know that's why there's this kind of structural relationship between capitalism and racism, right? It's changing. It's a different. That relationship looks very different today than it did a um, hundred years ago with something like uh, Jim Crow. It's you know a different from two hundred years ago with something like um, plantation slavery. But nevertheless, there is there is an ongoing uh, structural relationship between racism and capitalism that that leads to um, this this situation that we find ourselves in where we all talk about anti-racism we're all doing all this work to challenge unconscious biases and so on and yet um you know we still have you know our school system in the united states as segregated as it was in deep south in jim crow alabama um we still have these you know huge disparities in wealth we still have um uh you know mass incarceration we still have the, the police violence we still have a situation where um you know Millions of people around the world in um, in sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia, are dying because of hunger, right? We have a situation where um, in those parts of the world, they're going to bear the brunt of um, the overheating of the planet and the consequent flooding, the consequent um, making those parts of the world uninhabitable from from overheating. While, you know, they've not consumed, their consumption hasn't generated all the carbon in the atmosphere. Like the suburban home in the United States generates 50 times more carbon than uh into the atmosphere than than the people living in those parts right so so there you know again and that's that's part of this longer history of colonialism and neocolonialism and imperialism taking on this new form in the age of climate crisis right and and so this is all you know this is all the, the stuff that we ought to be grappling with if we're going to call ourselves anti-racist you know these are these are the kind of ways that um uh racism structural racism continues to to cause the deaths of of um of millions of people around the world right and and um if we're you know if we're starting with thinking about what you know what happened to george floyd um we should be able to start there and build up this bigger picture to understand this whole system and to think about um all the violence that's carried out whether it's police violence uh, military violence border violence and the violence of, of economic inequality right um and the ways that that plays out racially um so we, you know, and that's a lot to grapple with. It's not, it's not straightforward. But I think that um, uh, it, unless unless we're willing to do that, we're not really um, taking seriously that you know the, the task of anti-racism that we have. These connections are global, and and I think that's a, a major part of your book is to to kind of open up um, a conversation about the global dimensions of racism, but also the global dimensions of of anti-racism. Um, I guess I'm wondering about uh, about uh, how we think about solidarity uh, and practical organizing against racism today. 
how do we imagine and enact forms of concrete solidarity that are rooted locally, but also stretch across national borders? I've been thinking a lot about the violence at the U.S.-Mexico border these days, especially the violence of Texas's Operation Lone Star. This is a, a violence against immigrants, of course. Um, and I think many people recognize that this is some form of racism, but I wonder about how central this is to common sense understanding of how racism works today. How do we imagine and, and enact solidarity across and against the violence of borders? How is this connected with anti-racist struggle today? Yeah, so I think, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the writers that, that I, I look at in the book, um, thinking precisely about this question of of like how does a struggle in one part of the world especially if it's in a country that's an imperialist country like the united states or like uh, countries in europe how does that struggle that might be um, a labor struggle or it might be um, a women's struggle or you know all kinds of other kind of movements that might be going on how does that relate to can it relate to can it act in coordination with struggles that are happening in other parts of the world against colonialism or imperialism or whatever right and um, you know i mean that's, that's central to what clr james is thinking about central what like uh, kwame and kruger is thinking about um uh uh central to what a lot of the black power thinkers are, are thinking about like uh trap brown and Sophie carmichael right and uh, martin luther king as well absolutely and martin luther king also was was you know right for his life thinking about um the power of u.s corporations in a, in for example in latin america and how that connects to to his work and civil rights movement and obviously of course um things like the, the war in vietnam and um so you know um i think the a few things so firstly you know solidarity is is um it's a hard word to actually like i think sometimes the word solidarity isn't the most helpful way into this because it it's a word that feels kind of heavy and it feels kind of um kind of also hard to pin down right um it's it's a it's a it's a obviously something that we on the left have as one of our core values but it's but it's often not easy to see how we how we actually do it and so um so what we can say what what it certainly isn't is um so it's not charity right it's not pity it's not about um aren't isn't it awful what we do to these other parts of the world and, and you know and kind of sympathy in this kind of patronizing paternalist way um and nor is it um um kind of substituting ourselves for someone else's struggle right like i don't personally think that um the best way to um support you know say um you know so you know like, let's look at some of the, the things that so over the last few years you know um in for example in brazil there's a landless a movement of of landless workers right that is in this really interesting way like building up um uh its own kind of um subsistence economic system where it can grow its own food and it can it can kind of build up its own economy because these people who've been driven off of land and you know they're they're starting to figure out ways to to kind of squat uh land claim it and develop it right and build a community out of that right um there's um in the last few years, we've seen one of the largest mass movements ever in history of, of farmers in India um, en masse coming to Delhi to, to protest against new legislation that would have impoverished them, but also you know going way beyond that in terms of questioning the whole way that um, you know the economy works in India because it's a you know even now still you know the majority of people in India work in some kind of agricultural work, right? And so. Um, if we think about those things, that like solidarity does not mean one of us going over to that part of the world and and joining in that struggle alongside them. Um, uh, nor does it mean kind of you know donating money and stuff like that. I don't think that's what solidarity means. Solidarity means figuring out how we in this country can take on the same institutions that are oppressing our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, um, but doing it from from here, right, and building. Um, movements here and building collective power here. At the end of the day, when we're talking about structures, the only way we fight them is if we have collective power, right? Like that means, what does collective power mean? It means um, that we build a body of people who together are more than the sum of the individuals acting individually, right? And that means we have um, 
some relationship within that group of people uh, of loyalty to each other, of kind of disciplined commitment to some cause, where we're giving a certain amount of time on a regular basis to building something with those other people. Now, when you get even a really small number of people doing that, like 20 or 30 people doing that, you have um, the most powerful thing in the world, right? Um, because if you have 20 or 30 people come together who are committed to some cause and are willing to work and put in time and energy into doing that uh, on a regular basis, um, you can, I mean, I don't think it's romantic to say, change the world. I mean, the um, if you look at, and this is where the history becomes really revealing. The, um, you know, the, so Ghana was the first country in, in sub-Saharan Africa to liberate itself from British colonialism. Uh, which happened in towards the end of the 1950s. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King were there at the ceremony when Ghana was liberated. Um, 30 years before, if you looked at like what kind of anti-colonial movement exists in Ghana in terms of people who were sort of explicitly active, um, it would have been about 20 or 30 people. And yet within 30 years, they've liberated a whole country and begun a process that transforms the entire continent right? and redraws the maps of the world. Um, you know, similarly, I mean, I think... Um, you find find countless other people. I don't think I don't think probably in 1960 or so the number of of like actual civil rights activists in the deep south in the United States was probably about 30 people, right? And well, maybe not the whole deep south, but if you say like Alabama, Mississippi, um, but they changed they changed the the country, right? Um, so we don't need a lot of people, but what we do need is that is that sense of commitment to a cause, right? And um, and then we can start to to um, do things in this country that can that can not. I think the word is coordination, right? Like we can do things in this country that coordinate with struggles that other people are having in other parts of the world, right? Um, so you know, right now, for example, in in Britain, there's a group called Palestine Action, right? And what they do is they um, occupy and disrupt the offices um, and and factories of companies based in Britain that supply the weapons um, and other uh, 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 items for use by Israel in maintaining its colonial system in, in Palestine, right? So they're not they're not going off to Palestine to, to fight with the Palestinians. They're saying, let me use the, the, the um, uh, opportunities that I have in Britain to, to actually ta- tackle things that um, are happening in Britain that are part of the, the, the colonial project in Israel. Right, so that's that's um, seems to be a good example. the The other example from Britain recently is is um, you know we've had now two different groups of of people who have um, uh, been able to use kind of civil disobedience methods to stop um, flights that were going to deport people to um, to other parts of the world. Uh, so these would be people who um, maybe applied for asylum in Britain and then. Um, uh, had their asylum claims rejected, and they're they're being bundled on a plane and sent back to Jamaica or to um, uh, other parts of the world where they're from, and and by by kind of basically standing on the runway and blocking those flights or using other kinds of civil disobedience methods, they've stopped those flights from happening, right? And um, and then they've been brought in front of a, a court and and um, prosecuted, and by explaining to the jury why what they believed was necessary, you know, it's necessary for them to do what they what they did uh, for human rights reasons. Um, the juries have acquitted them. We've had two cases like that now. So what that means is, is that essentially it becomes possible now to do that kind of civil disobedience work with much less worry that you're going to end up being jailed. Uh, that's huge kind of victories that, that um, are being achieved here that are having a, a big impact in reducing the capacity of the British government to be able to deport people to other parts of the world, right? Which is... And deportation is an inherently violent process that kills people, right? So we have to be uh, standing up to it. And and you know, I think that's exactly the kind of. I mean, that does far more um, to to develop solidarity between Britain and movements in Jamaica than than anything else. I think is is, is by doing that work. I mean, we're going to have to move to a stage where um, you know, when we think about. The climate crisis um, and and the question of fossil fuels and how do we stop fossil fuels being extracted? Um, we're going to have to be thinking about this very carefully. About what is it that we can do in the United States 
for example, to act in coordination with people in Nigeria who are taking on the you know hugely damaging effects of of shell in in Nigeria or uh, uh, or similar movements in other parts of the world where you know where fossil fuels has has distorted um, their their well being um, as well. You know, like what what does that look like, right? How can we how can we um, take on the the corporations here while others are taking on those corporations up as well. But that's that's the kind of conversations we need to be having. Um, now, when it comes to yeah, and we always start with where we're at locally, right? Like you know, I think before you get to the point where you can start to do that coordinated work with other people around the world, you have to you have to have built up something where you are in the world and thinking about who's who's around locally, whether it's in your workplace or in your community or in your in you know other parents in the school that your kids go to wherever that hub is where you're going to be trying to build something um and um you know and that's where you know we just aren't have we're not doing enough in terms of like building those community those kind of um forms of collective organization you know morris bishop the um leader of the grenada revolution uh which you know which was was uh revolution that took place in this caribbean island of grenada in, in the late 70s and then U.S. military was so terrified of it that it, it sent in, um, you know, the Marines to, to to squash it. But the leader of that revolution, Morris Bishop, said, you know, organization is our greatest weapon. What he means is, is um, unless we're able to come together into collective bodies where we have that kind of um, uh, that force that that is greater than any of us as individuals, we're not going to be able to dismantle these structures because. By virtue of being structures, if we're talking about structural racism, then then the only way you dismantle a structure is is collectively, not individually. You, you have to build up that power. It's a power struggle. Um, and he also said, um, you know, revolution is not instant coffee, right? By which he meant it's not something that is going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. Build up those relationships. Build up that that collective power. You know, try out all kinds of different things. See what works or doesn't work. It, it takes time. And you know, there are large numbers of people doing that stuff um, in the United States. We're in a much better position than we were um, in the 1990s, I think. You know, we're in, a, we're in a much stronger position in terms of thinking about what that kind of organizing work should look like. But, um, but we, we need more of it and we need, um, I think, much less... You know, one of the questions here is, is what um, we're getting caught up on thinking that before we can do that that kind of collective organizing work, building up movements, building up um, bodies that, that act collectively. Before we can do that, we need to work on ourselves, right? And I think that's the mistaken assumption that a lot of us have, have ended up with in our movements today is, is this idea that we turn inwards first, we reflect on ourselves first, we kind of somehow do self-care, do do some kind of internal in, intervention, intervention on ourselves to get us ready for some future down the road where we think that we can do this collective work, but we never get to that point. Right, and actually, I think the best way that we um, process our own pain and our own kind of trauma and our own kind of um, uh, uh, you know kind of experiences and our own and our own internalization of of all the kind of competitiveness and individualism that capitalism inculcates in us, right? Because capitalism is not just something out there; it's something that gets put inside us as we get socialized in this society, right? So, to tackle all of that, the best way to do that is not to kind of turn inwards but to be part of something else right to be part of a movement that you know i think it's jose marty who said um the um the best way to find yourself is in service to others which i think is absolutely right and you know he talks about identity and um i think we get hung up on um trying to find out some deep truth about ourselves by thinking about the uniqueness of our pain right um uh, and I think it's something distinctively, it's a, it's something that neoliberalism inculcates in us. I think it has deeper cultural roots. Uh, I think it, I mean, you may, you, you will know more than me. Uh, but my sense is it's something of something Calvinist in that of, of like trying to find this kind of truth inside yourself about who you are. But, but it's, you know, I think it, it gets in the way of, of us actually coming together with others not emphasizing the uniqueness of our pain, but emphasizing um, uh, our service to each other, right? Our willingness to to work for each other's well-being, to understand that my growth as an individual 
depends on everyone else's growth as an individual. That for me, for me to be um, uh, to overcome my, you know, my traumas and my pain requires I work with others on their pain and their trauma, right? To to deal with the structures that cause that, because that's what capitalism does. It it forces us to constantly compete with each other, to trample over each other for a few crumbs, right? But you know, we, we'll need to work together. Right, and we'll need to we'll need to get over our, that kind of narcissistic individualism that is so powerful in society. Um, and when we, once we do that, once we're in these kind of collectives, um, you know, I think we experience a kind of joy, a kind of love um, that maybe for the first time we feel fully human. Right, but that's um, that's what we need to move towards. Um, and um, and um, I've seen it happen. I've seen it in my own life um, that we that you can kind of um, you know. You don't go into movements expecting to make yourself into a better person, but then you find just that you do. Uh, only, only because, only because you are um, involved in this kind of process of collective growth with others. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, those are wise words. Well, thank you so much, Arun, for your time today. And um, yes, I, I think I mentioned to you in an email that. This book, What is Anti-Racism and Why It Means Anti-Capitalism, is perhaps the best book on anti-racism I've ever read. It's it's simply a brilliant book. It's uh, analytically clear, and um, I think there's so much to be learned uh, from reading it, so I, re- I recommend it to people listening. And thanks again uh, for your time. Thanks so much, Rai. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Center for Social Justice podcast. To learn more about the center and its programs, visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash LCSJ or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at united underscore LCSJ.